0: Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright here in Fitzgerald, chat to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama from Wales and beyond to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown with, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is the playwright Kate O'Reilly. Hi Kate, how's it going?
1: It's going absolutely horribly, as you could expect. <sighs> <laughs> I don't mean it, but we just... Uh, I'm, I'm not one for platitudes when people say, How's it going? Oh, it's fine. It's not fine. It's not fine for everyone but
0: we're all in the same boat, we're doing the best we can. I mean, we've just had, we recorded this just before Christmas, and we've just had the announcement from Mark Drakeford. And yeah, I think everyone in Wales is feeling a bit like that at the moment, to be honest. It's feeling a bit like... <sighs> and I think it's a bit of Gallows
1: humour as well, though. Yeah. Because um, oh, I cited that or a little bit of um, histrionics coming to <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm locked down in Cardiff. I'm not even yeah. home. I can't get home. I'm still, so, you know, so it's sort of um, uh, I'm. It's a very odd time, full stop. Um, you know, kind of being in a friend of a friend's flat in Cardiff. So um, are, there get,
0: we go. <laughs> are you gonna make a dash for it, or you? No, no, no. Uh,
1: I'm
0: here now. This is it. Yeah. <sighs> I hope everything's okay with you, but I I want to start with the way I start um all of these podcasts. I want to ask you, how did you first get interested in theatre?
1: Um, being Irish, I think. Um, my parents were both extraordinary storytellers and performers in very different ways. The way they would, you know, tell little anecdotes about what happened during their days and so on. Neither of them were terribly well-educated in a kind of conventional, traditional, official education sense but um, there were phenomenal storytellers and performers and I think there was always a theatricality therefore to um, just the way that we engaged um it's part of just the family life and so also i think being irish the you know when we would gather together there'd always be you know you either had to give a song or a story or a poem um when we got together and it just developed from there i think it's something that was always
0: there and uh, um, did you like outside of the family did you were you a part of youth theatres or anything like that? No, no, nothing at
1: all. No, nothing like that
0: at all. And kind of, when when did you kind of think, you know, I I could do this, I could have a career, this is what I want to do, I want to be in theatre or I want to write?
1: probably about age nine when I'd written one of my first plays, which I also had produced and directed and took the starring role in that was in my parents' front (coughs) room in Aycock's Green in Birmingham. And I charged everybody a penny to get in. And I thought, oh, as I rattled (laughs) the money in my hand, I think I could do this. I wish I'd kept the business
0: <laughs> acumen I had when I was a kid. <laughs> you, you're making a huge profit there, one penny. you <laughs> it. Okay.
1: Oh, gosh, it was, must have been at least <laughs> ten pence. <minutes. laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so I think um, it's something I always wanted to do, mm-hmm. and um, I've always written, I've always um, performed in some way, and... Um, it was I was very again very very fortunate with the, my parents, the way I was reared, that um, they encouraged me to get skilled up, but to also follow my dream, whatever that might be. and they were very supportive.
0: And, um, and you went to um, the University of Sheffield. To I studied yeah. English literature and theater. How important yep. was that time for you as someone who's just emerging?
1: It was important for my politicisation because I was in Sheffield during the time of the miners' strike. Right. And um, that was an incredible time politically. Um, it was also a time of protest and direct action, and it shaped me a lot. Um, the degree sorry with respect to the university but the degree I, they nearly threw me out three times because I just didn't go I didn't attend I right. was too busy running all the different different arts societies and so on in yeah. the students union um, and um, you know so I, was, I saw university and in one way I, I've kind of regretted it since because I think oh my god that potential degree was wasted on me at that time I think if I had it back now, I would have done it differently. But at that point, you know, in my teens, I went, okay, I see this as three years to actually try things out to see, you know, can I write? Can I edit? Can I perform? Can I direct? And so, you know, I was the editor of the university magazine. Um, I was very much involved in the kind of drama society and so on. was in lots of productions, went to Edinburgh, you know, did all sorts yeah. of things. And I saw, and that was how I, at that time, I saw education and those three years at university was an opportunity to try things out. And I'm afraid, um, even though I'm delighted to say, somehow, God knows how, I still got a first, I didn't really attend anything for at least two years oh. of the three. Um, a university, ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, untruthful, but there we go.
0: And like, did you see yourself as mainly a performer at that time, or we you... at that
1: time? Yeah, yeah I did, and um, I was always writing. I, I'd write my audition pieces because I got so frustrated because parts for women were just terrible, you know. And I, I, um, it would either be 30 of us all lined up, all going to do Antigone, you know, or, you know, an audition piece with a bit of balls in it, a bit of bite. Um, Or I'd write my own. So I think I understood what I was able to do well as a performer. And I just wrote, you know, whether it was 90 seconds or a three-minute audition piece that would showcase what I thought was my skill as a performer. But it was very much a performer mm. to, to to begin with. Yeah. As a writer I was always far more interested in um, long prose form. And right. then the penny dropped one day that I could actually do a script. I could write a play. Oh.
0: Um
1: which I did as a student. I I was one of the winners of the international student playwriting competition. Um with my first piece. And then the second play, I was selected for the Royal Court Young Writers Festival. Um, and my third play was also um, at the, um, I think it was second wave at, um, oh, um, Chats Palace. Back in the day, so you know, I kind of went, wow. Mm. Obviously, I can do this quite well because people are picking me up and giving me workshops and giving me opportunities, and that all started from the age of
0: nineteen. As a young writer, were you more confident writing prose, would you say, than you were writing theatre, or or did you feel comfortable in the form pretty early on? Um,
1: I, I just. I'd always had it, you know, since I was tiny, 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 an ambition to write a novel, which I'm still kind of working towards, fulfilling, I hope, one day. Um, So I think it was just because I was such a bookworm when I was a child. And, you know, telling stories and performing was something that we all just did. It was all just, it's, you know be dinner time my dad come in from work and he'd just stand in the kitchen and have us all completely enthralled while he was telling us what had happened that day and so I think for me the writing and you know it was like the novel or the you know because I read so much and I loved I used to read all the all the novels it took me a while I think I was I was 14 when I um I read King Lear which is still one of my favourite plays, um, and also Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And reading those two full plays at that age, that's when I started mm. going, oh, maybe this is something I could try to do. But writing long prose was easier because I was more familiar with the form. I'm
0: going to move on slightly. Um, you started off as formal with Grey Eye. In 1986, what was it like at that point to be part of a company of deaf and disabled actors and formers?
1: Um, I got, I mean, we, we started in, I think I got the job in December 1986. So it was 87, 88 that I was with them in their women's company. Right. And um, it, it was fantastic because that was around the time that I was beginning to realize um, and I just because of late diagnosis um, I was able then to identify to start that whole kind of personal revolution about identifying as a disabled person finding out about the social model of disability getting involved with the disabled people's movement but also with disability arts and culture and it was remarkable because um I suddenly felt at home. I just went, oh, you know, well, here we are. It's an old cliche now. People keep talking about, you know, find your tribe. That phrase is such a cliche now. That that popular phrase. But that's what it felt like at that time. I suddenly went, oh my gosh. And I I belonged. I didn't have to explain anything. We had the same kind of. Um, Lived experience. We had the same politics. There was a sense of cult, the cultural expression we were involved in was new and evolving and exciting, and it was just remarkable um, to be amongst my own people. Mm. It felt like for the first time um, uh, the. The, the work we were doing um, at that time, I think, you know, when I look back, I think, oh my gosh, it certainly wasn't of the best. But it was, you know, I was there as a performer and um, working opposite some fantastic people, including Jenny Seeley, um, who played my lover in the, in the play. And, um, you know, I learned so, so much just from being on international and then national tour twice. With these, this group of remarkable women. Um, and that was really, if you like, my training and my education.
0: Um, you know, I learned yeah. so much about deaf culture, um, I learned so much about
1: touring, about trying to communicate things in international contexts because we toured Malaysia and Indonesia. I, I have performed in Borneo. <laughs> Sarawak. What, what you know, was that like? Place.
0: Because I can't imagine that those countries at that point anyway would have been the most inclusive countries in but the certainly world.
1: Certainly weren't. I mean, but it was the it was the year of the disabled person, um, which was how this particular grey eye show ended up going off, you know, and touring Malaysia and Indonesia, and. Um, it was very difficult in many ways because we rock up to places that were completely inaccessible. Um, I can remember one time, Jenny talks about it as well, um, where we rocked up to a place and we, instead of doing our show that evening, we actually did a structured improvisation of us arriving in a completely inaccessible space. And we're kind of trying to do it as applied drama, if you like, so that yeah. people would realise how impossible it was because, you know... There's no way that we could get the whole company on the stage. And, um, you know, so there were times like that where I suppose we felt like we were making it up as we were going along. But I think at the same time, because a lot of us, you know, it was kind of very 80s phrase, we were cultural activists. Um, You know, I think we would really, really try to communicate, as well as we could, with honesty but humour, uh, the inequalities that we yeah. were facing, particularly in other places, as I say, that perhaps hadn't had the kind of disabled people's movement that you know, I had benefited from here in the UK.
0: And do you think that changed the perceptions or altered the perceptions of the audiences you're flowing to? Who knows?
1: You know, yeah. I, I, I was talking about this with Ruth Fabby the other day um, from, from Disability Arts Cymru. Um, we were on a, a, a talk together and we basically said, you know what, we've been having the same conversation for 30 years. So um, I think here also in, in the UK, it's, it feels like everything is, is, goes around in a cycle. Mm. I think so many of the, the advances that we've made and the struggles towards more equality um, are being eroded again, particularly obviously under this government, which the less said about the better, frankly. Oh, um, yeah, but okay. it's ideological and disabled and deaf people we are being targeted
0: and it's, being targeted. Deliberate. it's deliberate it's deliberate oh, of
1: course it is it's ideological yeah. it's completely deliberate uh, and you know it's time for us to actually mm. start becoming active again and I think a lot of people are um, you know realising that uh, uh, as well so regard as to changing people's minds sure who knows I'd hope yeah. so but sure, I don't know
0: fair maybe. enough um, I wanted to ask you about the disability rights movement next. Um, in the eighties and nineties, kind of, how, how were you involved in that? And uh, like, how was that? Oh, like tra-
1: it it very very much on the margins. Um, I um uh it it also was um a wonderful, extraordinary expanding educating time but from the late 80s through into the, the mid 90s i was involved with um various days of action with dan with direct action mm-hmm. network but i was very much on the periphery and um but i you know there were a couple of days of action i was involved with like for example you know um we were talking about this the other day sarah beer and i we're talking about um, the Day of Action in Cardiff in 19, I think it was nineteen ninety four. Um, you know where a group of us had brought the centre of Cardiff to an absolute standstill, and you know there were some extraordinary actions being made by by um, amazing amazing activists you know, kind of chaining themselves to trains and stopping the trains in, in you know, Queen Street and Central, Cardiff Central. Um, uh, I was involved with with stopping the buses coming out of Wood Street, coming out of the, the bus station there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, I was, it's a tiny part. I was very, very small um, tile in a very large mosaic of extraordinary people who, you know, more power to them brought about massive change and I'm very proud to have been part of that, Mm. even though it was a very very small part, but it hugely impacted on me about you know, direct action and um, being the protagonist of your own life and actually really Mm. confronting inequality and social injustice when you come across it
0: And has that translated into your playwriting as well?
1: Oh yeah Yeah. I mean, I started off in in applied drama. I mean, my my specialism originally, I was very, very fortunate. I I was trained by Augusto Boal himself um, over a period of six years in um, Theatre of the Oppressed, Forum Theatre, and going into the Rainbow of Desires. So um, I I was incredibly fortunate to be part of the group that um, Adrian Jackson had got together at um, London Bubble... Um, back in the day, back in the 80s it started when Boal was coming over and kind of working with specific groups in different places across Europe while he was developing his games for actors and non-actors and um, so it was it's always been about activism, it's always been about, you know to quote mm. Boal, you know, rehearsal for life, rehearsal for revolution it was always about social injustice um, And so that had been my background, and so when I was first writing, um, I was often working in applied drama, in theatre and education, or in other contexts, And, um, and yes, there was always some kind of agenda, whether it was about gender politics, or then latterly, partly also about disability politics.
0: And, and what do you think is the relationship between, I mean, in a contemporary sense, the relationship now between disability arts and disability activism?
1: Oh, it depends where in the world you're, you are and what you're talking about. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the, the more international work I do, uh, the more I am aware of every country having its own context and its own journey towards what I hope will be a, a, a more equal and inclusive society in the future. Um, I, I, I was just recently working with a, uh, on a project in Cork in Ireland via Zoom, and um, I've been working in Singapore, um quite a, and Singapore and Hong Kong quite a lot the last few years. And it's been really interesting the different contexts and the different approaches towards disability or disability. Just even trying to explain what disability arts is is a major thing. Because you know I've had well, conversations with people who go, I'm doing what you're doing, I'm doing disability arts. And I'm going, Oh right, so it's disabled led. Uh, no, no, no. Oh. So you don't have disabled directors or writers or um, leaders. No, we, we we just you know work with people who are disabled, and then I'll be saying that's arts and disability. That's not disability mm. arts. It's got to be disabled-led. It's got to you know have come from a particular political or cultural um, identity um, in the UK context, at least for what disability arts is. And um, and I think part of my activism, I suppose, is trying to either make work or make projects where we have the possibility for this kind of um, encounter where we can actually you know raise questions, provide alternative models to working, um, yeah. share work that might be in certain ways, cutting edge for that context regarding things like the aesthetics of access and so on. But um, but I really think more and more the relationship between disability arts and, acti- and, and activism really depends, first of all, also on the individual, but also on um, the context and where we are in the world. I know a lot of um, artists who are making work funded or under the umbrella of disability arts but they themselves would not identify as a disability artist um, but you know that's something that i identify as but i would never ever want to kind of push my agenda or my perspective on anybody else uh, regarding what they think disability arts and activism might be
0: Are you saying that you're critical of of people who are, or that you're not critical of people who say what they're making is disability art, when in fact what they're doing is art and disability? Yeah,
1: I'm very critical of that, and I'll pull that out, because that's just the same old, same old, Mm. same old hierarchies, non-disabled, leading, keeping... Is the power dynamic which is deeply problematic mm-hmm. entrenched and I you know in many contexts and it's in the UK as well I'm not saying the UK is perfect we are far from perfect but you know and I'm constantly challenging that and asking you know who controls the frame who whose lens are we perceiving this through what you know and 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 so there is a laziness that has been happening that has come around the idea of people going oh yes we're doing you know inclusivity and and it's trendy and people can get funding (laughs) or they could if they were making work with disabled content or disabled artists and then they call it disability arts and you go no actually you're still actually working from a normative perspective I've been very critical, I've written essays about like Jérôme Bell's Disabled Theatre, deeply problematic collaboration he had with Theatre Hora from Switzerland, Um, you know, where they're claiming in certain ways the the work is something without necessarily doing the research or realising that there is a term called disability arts and culture that exists that has a definition, that
0: has a history mm-hmm. and it's not just something that you can throw around willy-nilly. I, I understand. Yeah, that's certainly to kind of, yeah, challenge all, all across. I want to move on slightly. Um, I wanted to ask you about your working process. Does it differ depending on the project that you're working on? And I'm, I'm particularly interested in... You write a lot in terms of form. You write a lot in terms of monologue. And what is key, do you think, to writing a good and effective monologue? Okay, several
1: questions there. Yeah,
0: sorry, well, that's a lot. No worry at all. They
1: all follow on beautifully. Um, I think... um every single process is different. Um, even if I'm going to be writing uh, something in a particular form that I've done before, even if it's, for example, multi-character based heightened realism, I, I don't work in naturalism. I don't like naturalism personally. Um, you know, um, more power to anybody else that wants to work there. I, enjoy watching naturalism but it's just not for me personally when i'm making my own work so it partly depends on what the question is that i'm i've set for myself and that i'm trying to explore Um, every time i do a project there's usually a question i'm trying to answer so it might be like with cozy which was an unlimited commission in 2016 My question there was, you know, how do I write a comedy about end-of-life scenarios? Um, And so that will also determine what my form is and what the approach is. Because what I decided, for example, for that, I went, okay, let's do something that's really emotionally engaging, that's character-driven, relationship-rich, let's write, you know, a Uh, about three generations of a particular family, and it's going to be really dark, (laughs) dark, gallows humour. Because I think laughter allows you to shine lights into dark, scary corners. So that would be very, very different as a process to when I've done the last show that I did um, this year, just got in before we went into lockdown, was the Beauty Parade, which was at Wales Millennium Centre, which I um, co directed with Philip Zerilli. And that was a piece that was basically musical. It was basically, I wrote a musical theatre piece, but it was in also using musical, song, spoken, projected, and visual mm. language. Um, so, you know, that was a very, very different process from other things that I've, I've done. And the collaborators are different and the relationships are different. And um, be, But because I'm always trying to put the aesthetics of access right at the heart of the works that I'm doing, um, there's always some kind of experimentation and thinking about what can we do with the aesthetics of access um, to be creative and, and as much as we can, you know, kind of inclusive. But regarding the monologues, um, I started writing a large body of work called the D Monologues. It's it's been published as that, and also in my atypical plays for atypical actors. Um, The D Monologues came about because I was so frustrated uh, that we Mm -hmm. had... um, very poor representation of difference in the plays that were being written, and I was also getting frustrated by non-disabled people creeping up, as, um, as I put it, in my mm. play Peeling, which I did for 2000, 2002, nearly 20 years ago. Um, with
0: uh, uh, are, are you responsible for the term creeping up?
1: I don't know if I'm responsible for right. the term creeping up, but there was sort of what became... Uh, what I used in the play became a slogan for a while okay. which was cripping up is the 21st century answer to blacking up. And it's a line that Alpha, one of the characters, says in the play. Um, I've never seen it down elsewhere. Some people have attributed that phrase to me because academics, for example, have not been able to find a previous um, reference but um but i but I think it was just alive in the language, the way that we talked to each okay. other at that time, and maybe I was the first to have it written down and published, yeah. but it was certainly alive in our mouths, you know yeah uh, back in in well, I wrote the play in two thousand so um and it was produced in 2002, so you know, it's twenty years ago now, um and yet it's still we're still arguing and fighting for it um. But, but I decided to go to monologues because I thought if I created a body of work, body being the mm. word, as in an atypical body. Um, if I wrote lots of work that people could either use as audition pieces or one-person shows or part of the sharing or part, you know, I. I Monologues are portable, they're cheap to put yeah. on, and you know, I suddenly saw that there could be all sorts of possibilities if I could provide that kind of um, library for disabled and deaf artists, but so I, I it's still ongoing, um, this project, so I've had over 100 conversations and interviews and discussions with deaf and disabled people, across the UK and into Ireland and Singapore and Malaysia and sort of spreading more and more now, um, where I've then written monologues that were informed by lived experience. But I'm, I'm very critical of um, verbatim theatre because it's often not done well, <laughs> In the way I've seen some stuff where it's very dodgy because somebody's life story, which they own, has then been taken and becomes the property, apparently, sometimes of another person. Do you and mean in, cases t- of that.
0: in terms very, of, like, ethics and things like yeah. that, whether it's the ethical question or whether I, the victim is right?
1: I find it problematic. I think, I think you can do it really well and ethically and very principled and there are lots of examples of documentary theatre and verbatim and so on that have done brilliantly and respectfully and acknowledge and credit everybody correctly but I can also, I won't, but I can also point to many many examples where it's problematic where I feel, you know, all we are, all we own are our stories in the end. Mm -hmm. And then the idea of potentially, you know, taking somebody's story or their anecdote or whatever, and then it's by Kate O'Reilly, that's so inappropriate. And that's why I go, I will then write fictional material um, that has also been informed by these myriad voices and perspectives and experiences. You know, as I say, it's over 100 individuals that I've, I've, I've now engaged with. Um, and regarding what makes a good monologue, well, how long is a piece of string? Fair it depends what you're doing. You know, some people turn around and say, a, you know, talking about, you know, brilliant monologues, for example, in Hamlet Machine, you know, Heine Müller, And then you'll get mm-hmm. people that go, oh, talking heads, you know, Alan Bennett, it's amazing. Or they'll talk about Eve Ensler and the vagina monologues. Or, you know, and yeah. and... I think what mm, I think what makes, from my perspective, a really engaging or successful monologue is that ability to um, hook an audience's attention, to perhaps make them feel what it's like to be under somebody else's skin and um, perhaps to try and shift somebody's viewpoint Um, monologues are really really difficult to do because it can be very boring very quickly Um,
0: Is it trying to make it active as well rather than just It's got to be It has to
1: be absolutely it's not somebody just talking it's not this if we were to transcribe this and give me rattling on the way i'm going on and on if we were to give that then to an actor to read that you know people would be walking out of the theater mm. <laughs> you know it's not it's it's not just somebody talking it's mm. got to be, it's it's the hardest thing to do because you've got to really structure it very tightly You've got to keep it alive. You've got to keep it active. You've got to keep it engaged with the, with the audience. You've got to keep the audience thinking what's going to happen next, or you've got to surprise them and engage yeah. them as well. Um, the last thing that you want is exposition. It's not about explaining. It's actually maybe something that raises more questions than answers them. Yeah,
0: I, I think sometimes that's what I struggle with. In terms of naming what the function is, knowing what the function is, why are you writing it in this form? Is it just exposition? And if you are doing it for that reason, you shouldn't do it. Is what yeah. the problems yeah. that I come across.
1: But I playwright's intention, your intention, for I think is absolutely central to why are you writing this. Why do you think it's important to to communicate this? Why now? Hmm. Who do you think is going to be interested? How do you keep them interested? Etc. Those are the kind of questions that always, because otherwise we can end up being unintentionally very self-indulgent
0: I'm going to move on. I want to ask you about Peeling that was produced by Grey Eye first in 2002, which raises questions about being a disabled woman in modern society. How, like, do you think the themes of the play are still relevant in 2020? And in terms of the response that you got, what was the difference between... The original tour in two thousand and two, and when it was retoured last year by Taking Flight, a lot there uh, to unpack again.
1: Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, was, you know, seventeen years later after its premiere, we uh, and the questions that the piece raises are as fresh and pertinent as they were, you know, at the beginning of this millennium when when it. Jenny Seely's fabulous production um, was first done. Um, Peeling looks at it, it's a meta-theatrical game. So the game we play is that there are two disabled and one deaf, performer, actress, or actor, depending on the different characters, identify their jobs in different ways. And they're the chorus of a postmodern production. Of the Trojan women, then and now, which kind of is going on around them and in spite of them, often, and they're basically on stage throughout, shoved behind scenery because the theatre is inaccessible. So the three of them are kind of chatting and talking, and you know, kind of they're partly in the you know behind the scenes, whilst the real actors play, yeah, perform the real play. And and then there are moments when they're on as the chorus. Um, The piece looks at war, genocide, rape as a war tactic, and um, women's control over their own body and their own reproduction, which is a big issue within disability in particular because, you know, we're still hearing stories of force, people being forcibly sterilised mm. um, and other things happening without even people's knowledge. Um, and also it, it, it very much looks at the, what your relationship is to the industry when you are deaf or disabled in our industry, in the theatre, mm. in live performance. So, um, so it's very, you know, there's lots of jokes that are, you know, in jokes within theater. Um, I quoted what Alpha says earlier, you know, blacking up is the, uh, the sorry, cripping up is the 21st century answer to blacking up. Um, so, you know, it, it, a lot of the politics and stuff that were resonant and alive when I wrote it in 2000, unfortunately, we haven't moved on. Mm-hmm. Well, we haven't moved on fast enough. I think there has been some improvement. It's a bit shocking that yeah. two decades after writing something, the reviews are still going, this is groundbreaking, this is extraordinary, this is radical, and I'm going, and it was first produced mm. 17 years ago. Is it? Like, I mean, oh. It's also just been in America as well. Last year I had, um, I think it was 2018, Taking Flight did it, and then they toured it into England in 2019, right. I think. Um, and it was sound theatre um, in the US did it um, yesterday, uh, last year in 2019. Um, and the response critically um, both to The Taking Flight and to sound theatre productions in the States. Again, it was extraordinary where they're kind of talking, saying these are stories we haven't heard. This is very new and fresh and radical. And it's a play that's 20 years old.
0: But what do we as disabled artists need to do? What can we do? Like, if it's... Think,
1: yeah, Wow. Well, I think... I think, first of all, I really, really want to... And, you know, I'm excited by you, sir. Oh, thank you. Um, And I'm excited by younger artists that are coming up who are political, who are kind of maybe um, asking the kind of questions that you are, because um, I feel there's a disjunct at the moment between, you know, some of the, uh, the, the, the old broads like me, who, you know, were knocking around and lying down in front of buses in the 1990s, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of like very proudly identifying as disabled, and then coming across a lot of younger generation artists who go, but actually I don't identify as disabled because A, I don't want to put any kind of label on myself, and B, um, you know, I think that's reductionist. Um, And of course I would never ever want to, as I said earlier, I would never ever want to kind of, you know, force my agenda onto other people. I think every, you know, every generation comes with new blood and new ideas and new energy, but... I think um, I, th- I think having um, great awareness of the social model yeah. of, of disability really helps, because I was talking today with a student in um, Cork uh, at UCC who was interviewing me about the project I made in Cork with Sarah Beer recently, and she was saying, over here in Ireland, Nobody wants to call themselves disabled because they're a bit embarrassed, or they—it's a—you know—you're saying that you're useless if you're disabled. And I was saying, well, this is the trouble. This is why we have to have wider known that actually, it's not us. It is so you know, it's society, the attitudinal and physical barriers that are disabling, not the body. There is no shame with the with with being disabled. The shame is. Mm. social construct that Uh, you know we're not more inclusive so i think to begin with i think being a bit more political Mm. or having a certain broader perspective perhaps to see about social injustice i think that's something and it's not just to say i think everybody whether it's about black lives matter or the me too movement or whatever i think we've got a great opportunity with this kind of amazing people an amazing time now that that feels really mm. political and feels really engaged and feels really creative, and I I just want to have a bit more intersectionality um, <laughs> and and and, uh, and pride, pride.
0: Uh, in us. And what do you say to like big companies or kind of quote unquote mainstream companies? who are a bit reticent or a bit afraid of, you know, maybe saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, but want to, want to work with disabled artists, but don't maybe know how.
1: I think I've been really, I mean, I think that, you know, I did a lot of banging on doors and a lot of conversations and a lot of disability awareness training and a lot of mentoring um, with different large companies over the years. And they would be fearful and, um, it, you know, whether it was just I'm too tub-thumping or I'm too in their face or something, I don't know, the, the fault may have been with me or it may have just been the time. Um, now, I am delighted to find that I'm being invited more and more to actually have those conversations and being viewed as somebody that, you know, has been doing this for a very long time and, you know, seen as one of the pioneers of the the aesthetics of access, um, you know, kind of over the last 20 years plus. Um, And I've actually found that I don't have to necessarily convince quote-unquote mainstream companies so much now. I think people, um, maybe I'm just also very fortunate that the people that I've been working with are people that want to have greater representation, more inclusivity across, you know, right the way, whether that's to do with, you know, age or, you know, cultural heritage yeah. or, or, or disability and so on. But I used to have to really try and argue um, that you have to see it to be it. And because we weren't having much representation of difference Mm -hmm. um, on our stages, that 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 was problematic in many ways. But I think also on top of that, it's something I've, I've often spoken about theater, which is, you know, this place supposed to be about celebrating all the possibilities of what it is to be human has been very, very narrow in who is assumed to be on that stage that the stories are important to be told and that is in the process of changing but it hasn't you know we've still got a long way to go
0: and and who tells those stories as well you know if our stories as or versions mutations of our stories as disabled people are seen on stage and screen a lot of the time still they're told by non-disabled people yeah, as absolutely. a mutated version of what it actually is. So it's about putting disabled artists front and centre as well. I
1: absolutely. Uh, it, 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 that's really important. But I think also, it's, I remember having a conversation with one of the very big, leading, new writing theatres in London. And they were saying, "Oh, you know, we were talking." I was saying we were talking about more representation, and I was talking about I was asked and said, uh, "You know, do you want to get more diversity culturally into your building?" Mm -hmm. Because they've just been telling me that they had worked with with um, uh, a disabled artist, or rather it was an artist who used, a a director who used a wheelchair, but they didn't identify as disabled because they were really, really able to do stuff, and I went, but that's not disability culture, and that's not a diversity, that's a diversity in body. If you want a diversity in body, that's fantastic. We need that anyway, but if you're wanting to have a diversity in culture, in perspective, you've got to be working with people who are working from, you know, and informed by the lived yeah. experience of disability, which is one of injustice predominantly. And, and I think that's also important. It's not just saying, let's, you know, let's make sure that it's disabled and deaf people yeah. that are there in the centre. Absolutely. But if you're wanting to have a cultural diversity, you also need those people that might be coming from that political or yeah. cultural or linguistic identity.
0: And was that something that happened, for example, on, in Walter and Rachel's, which was a part of the 2012 Cultural Olympiad? And yeah. am I right in saying that was one of the first examples of an all-disabled caste?
1: It was an uh, all disabled and deaf identifying cast presenting material that was informed by the lived experience of disability, right. written by a playwright who identifies as disabled. <laughs> um, and so, and it was the first on a national platform. Of course, there being been companies, you know, like I, I, the stuff I was doing in the 80s with Grey Eye and yeah. the Grey Eye, you know, had been an all disabled cast. But it was the first time I wasn't told that it was on that kind of national platform with that kind of visibility, because I did it with, it was a collaboration between National Theatre Wales, Wales Millennium Centre and the Southbank Centre. Um, mm. And it was an unlimited commission, part of the Cultural Olympiad. And, and it yeah, I mean, it was fabulous. So, you know, I had six of the greatest, you know, exciting performers who are deaf or disabled, you know, coming out of the UK and and, and it was incredible, you know, an assistant directed by Sarah Sarah Beer, directed by Johnny McGrath Um, and it was just so, so exciting to have that on that platform.
0: And, And kind of, again, in terms of response, did you get a... What was the response like and kind of did it surprise you in terms of how it was received?
1: Um, no, um, the more mainstream critics um, were kind of, um, yes, I think th- there were a few comments about, you know, how the, the speech is worthy of Shakespeare. But then going, but they're very angry, aren't they? I wonder why they're so angry. Um, so some of the reviews were a bit patronising. Um, they were still better, though, than when we did Grey Eye back in right. you know the early noughties, because a lot of the reviewers were just describing the bodies of the performers rather than the content Mm. because it was still so unusual to have that representation of those bodies on stage but even in the reviews in 2012 you know there would be a description of you know what matt fraser looked like for example Mm -hmm. or you know and and it still is that thing about you know looking it's 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 othering it's it's looking from a normative perspective um it's got better it has got better mm-hmm. compared to the reviews in 2002 and three which were absolutely outstanding i have to say about um peeling but where they were upsetting was the way that they were oh, and they're really good oh, oh, who well, would have thought yeah. that they were such good actors and oh, but then they would also just spend a whole paragraph describing you know what somebody's atypical embodiment was Which is really
0: problematic. And and if you're reading your review, you you don't want to read that. You want to know whether the work is good or not. That should be the point of the review. But yeah, I I can see where you're coming from regarding that. Um, The last thing I want to ask you is the way I finish all of these podcasts, what advice would you give to someone like me, who's just starting out in the industry, particularly where we are with COVID.
1: Mm. Grow a fifth skin, because the second, third, fourth skin isn't sick enough. Don't take rejection personally because the one thing that is always going to happen in our profession is rejection. And, um, you know, I I am constantly applying for stuff and trying for stuff and, and getting rejected, but people don't see that because they'll see instead me, for example, having a production yeah. or being involved in something. So they actually forget sometimes that... You know, rejection is a huge part of what we do. One of the bits of advice I always say, if you, you know, people talk about keeping irons in the fire, the idea that, you know, going to try and... Well, my thing is, I say, if you've got 10 irons in the fire, it's more likely that several of them are going to get warm rather than just one. Mm -hmm. So I'm always saying, throw your hat in the ring, Let's see how many other cliches I can come up with. <laughs> but be a contender. Yeah. Know that if the work is, is rejected, it's, it isn't you. It's just actually that particular context. You don't know on what um, criteria that things are being selected. Yeah. Um, there are all sorts of things that can impact on that. And, and the thing that can be really most challenging is that you have constant no's, 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 or you feel that you are being diminished because people aren't going, this is great. You've got to keep going because I also, you know, I've had an award-winning play that was rejected very early on and if i'd Mm -hmm. actually just gone well that's it i've got to give up or i'm not going to try putting that play out again or sharing that with anyone um i think you know i'd be in a very different situation i think we have to skill up i think that um part of us being uh, having longevity in our career is that we also know how to write grant applications we know how to apply for Mm. funding, we can produce things ourselves. We can hopefully get bursaries or funding Mm. that will support us and enable us to do what we want to do. But that's also a skill. We have to learn those administrative and budgetary skills, I think.
0: And those are skills that I was never taught in uni, that they never taught me in university. And I And I think... We should. I think yeah. it would
1: be very helpful if you're trying to make artists, um, you know, and at the, the, the reality is, you know, producing our own work or, you know, gives us more agency. Definitely. And, you know, you can it, having that support or funding or being able to apply for stuff. It's also going to help when you're trying to communicate with what the vision of your project is. It's going to help with the marketing. It's going to help in in so many other ways. So I think skilling up is is really good. And I think don't try to replicate something you've done that's been successful. I think you have to keep fresh every time. I would also say don't follow trends.
0: Okay. Set them Thank you That's really helpful Kate Thank you so much for your time It's been fantastic having Thank you me. on Great great
1: talking to you
0: Thank you And I will see you on the next episode of In Lockdown With I'm not sure who the guest will be yet But I will see you then So it's bye from me And it's bye from Kate Bye bye, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.